Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, June 2nd, 2016. Just a reminder, vacation starts for me at the end of tomorrow's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Actually, i got to preach on Sunday, but after that, taking a couple of weeks off. Got to recharge the batteries. Much needed R&R. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We slow down. We open up our Bibles. We put things into context. We check to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying and whose, you know, small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God to see if what they're saying squares with what God's Word says or if they're generally teaching for shameful gain, filthy lucre is a good way of putting it, the things that they ought not to be teaching by twisting God's word and not teaching the truth, scratching, itching ears, that kind of stuff. Now, uh, one of the ways you learn how to spot a phony is by becoming very fluent and familiar with the original, the sound thing itself. That would be sound doctrine. And we've been listening to a series of... of um, Lectures, not lectures, but lessons, Sunday school lessons taught by Pastor Jeremy Rohde on the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is the last one. We are at the final, final, final one in the series. And so we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 11 and 12. And Pastor Rohde is uh, wrapping this all up on the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you've been tracking with this entire series, then you know that, um, well, this was an in-depth study, and it helps us come to grips with the fact that the whole creation has been subjected to frustration and futility, that, you know, we're kind of stuck in this eddy spinning around, and that this idea that somehow Christianity is all about finding some dream destiny thingy that you're supposed to get via, you know, from God in order to go and make the world a better place. That isn't Christianity at all. And a good study of the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've been tracking with it, has inoculated you against the false teachers and those who would teach you that Christianity is a means to an end in the, in the sense here and now. It's a means to an end to 
health, wealth, prosperity, uh, affluence, influence, and, a, and the ability to go and make a huge, profound difference in the world and put your stamp on it. No, nah, that's not what it's about at all. No. So, with that in mind, this is the final installment, the last lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes. Here again is Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Okay, the plan today is to finish the text itself, and then the plan for next week is to do um, Ecclesiastes in an hour, so that a month, uh, or less, or whatever time we have, so that a month from now, when you're like, that was really good, but I don't remember what it was about, uh, you can go back and look at this one uh, video, and uh, or if you want to point a friend to a resource and say, hey, here's Ecclesiastes, like you've probably never heard it before, then you'll have this, this resource. Okay, so that's my idea. If in the meantime uh, you have, and maybe, maybe do this, think over some of the themes we've been through in the preceding months, some of the questions you have, some of the things that might still be rolling around in your mind, and uh, come next week uh, willing to share some of those things. Maybe we'll begin the class with sort of just an open Q&A, okay? And just have a few thoughts to meditate on. And then I'll sort of launch into the, uh, the uh, Ecclesiastes in an hour, Ecclesiastes in 40 minutes, whatever we have, sort of synopsis. Does that sound all right? All right. I got some feedback that people weren't yet completely tired of it, so we'll go one more week. All right. So then uh, the main theme that I want to review from last week is that idea of the pendulum that I brought up, okay, really that's brought up in the text. Because it's what chapter 11 is all about, but it's what so many of the passages of uh, Ecclesiastes are about. And that's simply this, that while the toils, the pursuits of this life are ultimately, in themselves, unfulfilling, vanities, meaninglessness. Okay. And we might be willing to say, okay, so that's how they are, that's how it is, and the pendulum starts to swing, and you say, okay, well, you know, I was raised to think this life was great and grand, and it was just up, 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 and better and better every day, and it's just from one glory to the next, and it never stops, and you know, that's sort of been my worldview, except the older I've gotten, I've seen cracks in that worldview. I've seen things that don't harmonize with that worldview. Okay, and then Ecclesiastes comes and takes that worldview and just beats it to death, you know. Okay, I got it, I got it. Message received, and the pendulum starts swinging. And the tendency for it is to swing all the way from error, past truth, into the opposite error. One of my favorite sayings is the opposite of an error is not usually the truth, it's just the opposite error. Okay? So the opposite error would be, well, all is vanity. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. I don't need your Ecclesiastes in an hour, Pastor Rody. I already know. Everything's meaningless. Okay? Okay, when what have I taken from that? Why even try? See, the Bible says, don't even try. Pastor Rody says, don't even try. Okay? I'm going to move back in with, uh, I don't know, some of you could move back in with your kids and live in their basement <laughs> and do the equivalent of play video games the rest of your days. 
So this works both ways, I think. <laughs> so the, the, the danger here is that the pendulum swings all the way over into the opposite air, and we read Ecclesiastes and we think, well, that's a very pessimistic book, and either we reject it as such or we accept it as such, and our whole outlook on life becomes one of pessimism, nihilism, and uh, apathy. Okay? So you just say, well, who cares? Or, well, I'm not going to engage. Or, well, I'm going to put my uh, best foot? No. I'm going to maybe put a foot forward, and if I do, it's going to be a half-assed foot. Right? That's how I'm going to approach life. Okay? To which Ecclesiastes also says, No! No! Now, it says this all the way through. Right? I mean, the pursuit of of wisdom is ultimately vanity. Okay, so may as well be a fool. Just live like an idiot. Do whatever I want to do, right? Wrong. Wisdom is better than foolishness. Okay? Just don't mistake it as your idol, as your God, as the ultimate answer to this life. But don't throw it out. Use it. Same with all of the toils, really. Same with the toil of pleasure, seeking the good life, good things, enjoyment. Okay? Don't, what's it going to profit you to go through life as a grump? Right? What's it going to profit you to be so wise, remember the, my example, that you never make a fool of yourself on the dance floor? Okay? So when you go through life, you know. Ah, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of the good life, the pursuit of uh, enjoyments. Okay, that's meaningless, right? Don't idolize it. You need something else to fulfill you. Well, it's meaningless, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pursue those things at all. I'm gonna bury my head in the ground and I'm gonna suffer like a like a good German would and uh, avoid any good things. You know, we don't we don't want anything too flashy or extravagant or nice. Um, you know, put a little less spice on the pork, please, so that we can just have everything kind of dull and gray. Okay. That w- to that, Ecclesiastes says, no! No! Eat your dinner. Drink your wine. Have a good time. But don't mistake that for the end-all be-all. Okay? So again, you see that the, it's neither extreme of worship this stuff, Or hate and despise and reject this stuff. The same thing would be true for greatness. The the pursuit of building uh, a a legacy, building um, uh, a a monument, building something that changes society or a company that works for the good of of fellow man. Do good stuff. Do great stuff. Pursue. That's all throughout Ecclesiastes. Don't mistake it for an idol. Don't mistake it for who you are or what counts. Don't think that on the last day, God's going to be pretty impressed by your resume of accomplishments. right? Or that that building that stood for a whole 150 years had your name on it. Not going to mean very much then. Ecclesiastes has us see that pursuit also as valuable. So also with philanthropy... Okay, whether that's very personal in our own families or extended uh, more toward the family of God or even beyond that to the family of human beings. Um, 
again, Solomon points out reasons why that in and of itself isn't a complete answer and isn't a fulfillment of our existence. Namely, if your being and your life is vanity and meaningless and you're serving a whole bunch of other people and their lives are vanity and meaningless, you're still ultimately serving vanity and meaninglessness. That's one of Solomon's points. Okay, So, philanthropy cannot be your God, cannot be your identity, cannot be your religion. Okay, so I should just live for myself. I should just, uh, you know, spend all my money so my kids get none of it, right? I should cease all contributions to uh, charitable organizations, and I should only uh, use my finances for my good pleasure. No. No. And that's chapter 11. Cast your bread on the waters. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. Spread, distribute, share. Uh, am I the only one hearing that? No? Okay. I think there's something up there. Maybe we have some Lutheran rats listening in or something. <laughs> oh, well. I'll try to ignore it. Okay, so uh, chapter 11. Um, or someone's stuck in there doing Morse code. I don't know. Focus, Rody. Come on. Get it together. <laughs> okay. Cast your bread upon the waters. Chapter 11, verse 1. Verse 2. Give a portion to seven or to eight. Okay. Verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening withhold not your hand. And again, we're going to review the, these principles in chapter 11, but chapter 11 is all about, yeah, life is unpredictable. Yeah, life is out of your control. Yeah, you don't know what disaster is going to happen, but guess what? If you live your life wondering what disaster is going to befall you next, you aren't going to live your life. Okay? And so Ecclesiastes is an encouragement to engage. I mean, this is, this is the fun, this is the joy, and, and this is... Uh, already getting into, you know, beyond what Ecclesiastes teaches, into the revelation of Christ Jesus, all right, and that everything is new, and that everything is changed, and this is the joy we have as Christians, okay? Um, everything is meaningless, says Ecclesiastes, and it is. Under the sun, using these human eyes, using this human brain, and nothing else, it's all meaninglessness. And yet with the revelation of God, with the revelation of Christ Jesus, with the eyes of faith, everything is changed and everything is made new. So we engage this world. And it feels so paradoxical. Right? Have you ever thought of, I mean, some minor idea of a good thing to do pops into your mind. You know, I should call so-and-so and encourage him. You know, this person could really use just... Just a little lift up. I'd like to take them out for lunch. You know, okay, that homeless person. You know, for whatever reason, they caught my eye. I would like to buy them lunch. You know, I would like to give them five dollars. I don't really care how they use it. Um, what happens as soon as that idea pops into your head? Oh, there is a cacophony of voices. 
Oh my gosh, your heart and your head screaming everything that could possibly go wrong, how stupid it is, what a waste it is, it's all meaningless, it doesn't matter in the end, it's not going to help, it's not going to do anything, ah, he'll use it on booze, ah, she'll just, it'll just go right to her head, uh, you know, on and on, on and on, okay, to which... Again, Ecclesiastes gives us the strength to recognize those voices for what they are, and then to recognize that the voice of the gospel speaks something different, something paradoxical that says, yeah, and so what? Help anyway. Engage. What if it doesn't make any tangible difference? Do it or not do it? Ecclesiastes itself says, do it. Do it. This is, the, this is the fun. You get to look and say, I am throwing good money after bad and helping this person. Okay. Oh, that's stupid, Pastor Rody. No, that's hawking a loogie into the abyss. That's what God's children get to do. We get to peer in the, we get to peek over into the dark abyss of complete meaninglessness, and none of it matters, and none of it changes, and none of it's going to do any good anyway. And we get to go be like, okay. And just why? Here, a cup of cold water. Here, five dollars. Here, an encouraging word. Okay. Small things that our whole reason in being screened—they're meaningless. The gospel changes into eternal things. More on this next week. But that's the nature of our good works, cleansed and redeemed by Christ, the new thing that comes under the sun, who makes all things new. In Revelation, we're told that the works of the saints. Follow them. That is the little things we do here and now matter and follow us and echo into all eternity. Which is quite contrary to Ecclesiastes and what our eyes and reason and flesh think. Right? It's a miraculous thing. It's a wonderful thing. So much so that um, Christ says, Whatever you do unto the least of these, my brothers, you do unto me. I mean, if I'm doing it to the least of these, my brothers, or any of the least, I might be thinking, what are they? They're mortals and sinful. They're going to use it. They're going to waste it. They're going to end up dead. It's not going to make any difference for them. And yet, when Christ says, you're not doing it to them so much as you're doing it to me, that's different. That's different. That work has eternal effect, eternal meaning, for it's done to the one who is himself meaning, who is himself eternal. Okay? So much so that Christ says, if you give even a cup of cold water to one of my disciples, you will by no means lose your reward. And again, think about reward more biblically than like an, an American evangelical. A reward is not a gold star in heaven or a... Or a divine cookie from the heavenly cookie bank or another jewel in your crown. It's different than that. It's integrated. It's not so crass. It's not a reason to boast or to be ahead of anyone else uh, in heaven or here or otherwise. The whole idea is that your works follow you. The things you've done change you. The things you are and do follow you into eternity. There's continuity between this life and the next. Those are all reasons to engage and to do. And I hope that you can see that written all throughout uh, chapter 11. 
Last but not least would be religion, and I'm going to talk more and more uh, more about that next week. So I don't want to I don't want to get into it much this week, but religion too then as a pursuit as a toil is uh, is something Ecclesiastes would have us pursue. Remember the way that God is in Ecclesiastes, the way Solomon uh, portrays God is the way we would do theology without the revelation of God, and strictly if we were to do theology by what we see in nature, in humanity, using our eyes, using our brains, what do we have of God? God as a mystery. God as a terror. God as fickle, perhaps unjust. God as one to be indicted. God as one to be perhaps hated and yet feared. Okay. That's where Ecclesiastes has left us. Remember those great lines? It's on my favorite in the Bible. Don't be too righteous. <laughs> great. That's so great. <laughs> ah, if only I had the scriptures when I was a kid in Sunday school. Do you know how much fun you could have? <laughs> oh my. Oh well, there's a good thing I guess God... Leaves us till we're adults to learn some things. So yeah, don't be too righteous. Don't be too righteous. Now, um, that's the picture that Ecclesiastes paints of God, and yet it's continually reminding us to fear God, to realize that what He has made crooked, we can't make straight. To realize that what He has hidden, we can't figure out. To realize no matter how wise you are, you aren't going to know the all of it. In fact, you're not going to know the half of it. In fact, why don't you look over at the opposite sex? You're not even going to know that. Right? Remember uh, Solomon's lament that the one thing he couldn't figure out was women. <laughs> I'd say his wife, but that's not exactly true. His wives and concubines. Okay, so that for Solomon was simply one example of the limitations of humanity. That is that God is God. So even then, throughout Ecclesiastes, you see that while he denounces religion per se as if this was the end-all, be-all fulfillment of life, no, that too ends in vanity, just like the rest of it. Nonetheless, we say, oh, it's all meaningless. Forget it. Just go to St. Mattress, right, on Sunday morning. Um, no, I, you know, no. Engage. Engage is still the message of Ecclesiastes. So now we have the message of Ecclesiastes avoiding both of these errors, both of these poles, and Ecclesiastes says, engage. Now, what what is Ecclesiastes not doing? Still not giving us the answer. It's just saying avoid this error and avoid this error. Don't make this life your idol don't completely disengage from this life. But is that really an answer to the problem? No, it's not. Ecclesiastes is still one great big gaping question mark. One great big gaping hole that has to be filled in with an answer. And as I've said before, that answer is Christ. And next week I'm going to get into very concretely how it is that Christ addresses not only the pursuits or the toils, these things we've been talking about here before today, but also how Christ addresses and overcomes the vanities 
Those themes, those things in Ecclesiastes are constantly dogging us, making everything we do vain and meaningless. Because Christ addresses both. He destroys the vanities. He redeems the toils. We'll get into that next week. So again, Ecclesiastes doesn't give us that answer, but that answer is to be found in Christ. All right, so before we get into the new material now, I'll pause and see if you have any thoughts or any questions. Also give a chance for the microphone guy to get loose. There's Jim, stretched out for sprinting around the room. All right, any thoughts? Any questions? Okay, then let's move on. So, it's a little bit uh, dicey to divide chapters 11 and 12 because they flow really, they just flow seamlessly into one another. The themes continue, everything continues. So how exactly to teach this and approach this is kind of difficult because you just can't get through it all in the time we have. Nonetheless, let's sort of just fly through chapter 11 and go into chapter 12, which is the new material. Okay, chapter 11 again. The theme is engage in the first two verses. Cast your bread upon the waters. Okay, that is uh, upon, yeah, I, I, the, I, the most commentators even from the early church forward think that this means uh, on ships, trade, which is risky business. And the idea of bread upon the waters is even more risky because bread and water don't exactly mesh. So poetically it's highlighting the idea of risking that's involved in trade in engaging the world. Okay? You will find it after many days, it's thought by most commentators to be, uh, that look, you have to risk in order to gain. Um, verse 2 is very similar. Give a portion to 7 or to 8, for you know not what disaster may happen. Which again, if you were to put this in really common wisdom terms, it would be don't put all your eggs in one basket, especially your own. Distribute your eggs. Um, Not only will others benefit from it, but if disaster comes upon you, you may benefit when one of your eggs has been kept safe with them. That is, when they're there to help you in your day of need. Now we move into the poetic sections. Uh, Remember, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. The idea here is you can't stop it. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. You don't get to choose. You can't change it. In fact, to try to do so would be quite fatal, I'm sure. Okay, now look at verse 4. It ties this all together a little bit. He who observes the wind will not sow. Now the wind, um, what causes a tree to fall? Usually the wind. So if you look at the wind, if you look at the disasters it wreaks, you're not going to sow because you're going to say, what's the point? Right? And he who regards the clouds will not reap. Ah, there's the field, it's ripe for the harvest, but alas, it's going to rain. I'm not going out. And the rain, uh, this clouds, this reference to clouds goes back to verse 3 if the clouds are full of rain. In other words, if you look at the way that life is, you can't stop the rain from falling. You can't determine which way the trees are going to go. You can't pick the day. If you look at all these things, if you observe the wind, you're never going to go sow. If you regard the clouds, you're never going to go reap. Which, again, the theme is, don't be that way. 
So, reap. Anyway, um, don't observe the wind. Don't regard the clouds. Do anyway. And that's carried. that idea is carried uh, through in the next two verses. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. There's a limitation. Yet nonetheless, verse 6, in the morning, sow your seed. Okay. Sow, do. And at the evening, withhold not your hand. Give, interact, trade, invest. And I don't mean just financially, I mean with people, with relationships, with life. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good, or whether both alike will be bad. Remember what Solomon has said earlier, the day of prosperity comes from the Lord, and the day of adversity comes from Satan. Right? Wrong. Yeah. The day of prosperity comes from the Lord and the day of adversity comes from the Lord. Okay. So you don't know. You don't know. What should you do? Sow anyway. Sow your seed. Don't withhold your hand. Alright? That's the advice. Be wise. Enjoy your wine. Enjoy your wife. Okay? Uh, Help other people. Pursue great things. Fear God. All right, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back to the balance of today's lecture on the book of Ecclesiastes 11 and 12. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Rex here, again. Now I know that all of you have been hearing about the latest fad in the church called an Emmaus walk. Well, you know what I think? It's uber lame. I mean, what's so special about going on a little walk, hoping and praying that Jesus is going to show up and have an enlightenment picnic with you? It's not nearly hardcore enough. 
I'm starting a new fad. It's called the Road to Damascus Walk. You don't go out trying to find Jesus. He finds you. And after he's found you, he knocks you off your horse, throws you in the mud, blinds you, and then sends you on a harrowing journey to a town that you've never been to in order to find a prophet of God. It's way more awesome than an ant-infested picnic next to a scum-filled pond. Don't believe me? Well, then give it a shot. I dare you. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never really works through biblical text to teach it to you in context, in depth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, your financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us. That's right. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, well, you get to pick your rank in our crew. We have four ranks to choose from, and they are lowest rank, Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month, Gunner's Mate, $24.95 a month, Master Gunner, $49.95 a month, and Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. It's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to 
Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of the very last lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes. Here again is Pastor Jeremy Rohde. All right, um, we continue now with these themes. Light is, okay, so in 6 we have uh, reference to morning and evening, and this begins a, a great poetic theme that I think in some respects stretches out throughout this whole thing. Morning and evening is itself a cycle. We spent some time talking about this all the way at the beginning of the book. Um, if you look at chapter 1, verse 5, for example, um, when he's beginning to, when he's introducing us to cycles and the futility caused by them, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Sun up, sun down, sun up, sun down, sun up. It just never ends. It just never stops. It just never goes anywhere. Okay. Now here at the end, we have a very similar theme with the with the morning and the evening reintroduced. Okay, look at verse 7. Light, that is the morning, the day. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Okay, great. In the cycle of life, this would be birth. This would be the new dawn, the new morning. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them, in them all. But let him remember that the days of Darkness will be many, and ultimately, all that comes is meaninglessness. So the cycle of morning and evening, day and night, sun rising, sun setting, is itself ominous to us because it reflects how we also as human beings have our daytime, the springtime of your years, and we have our nighttime the fall and winter of your years. And even in the days of summer and the days of light, sprinkled all over the place are days of darkness. Okay, so we have the first hints as to how this book is going to conclude. Um, again, this is nothing short of a masterpiece, a literary masterpiece. He's already weaving threads together in a beautiful tapestry. It's going to end his book perfectly. End of verse 8. All that comes is vanity, meaninglessness. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But, the terrible but, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Which sort of ruins it. And by sword, I mean completely. <laughs> I, I mean, be, be young, be proud, enjoy your youth. It's a gift from God, right? Walk in the ways of your heart. What does Jesus have to say about the heart? Oh yeah, that's right. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. What does Jesus have to say about the sight of the eyes? Oh, that's right. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So again, we feel 
Solomon closing the walls in around us. Remove vexation from your heart. Oh, your heart's sad, you're troubled. Cheer up. You can do it. Pick your emotional self up by the bootstraps. Just be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Those of you who have ever suffered with any kind of uh, depression, um, whether it's a, an episode in your life or a recurrent thing, whether it's caused or not caused, um, by, an, by an event or a circumstance, I mean, you know how futile it is when someone says to you, snap out of it, cheer up, be happy. Ah, what's wrong with you? Right? I mean, the very essence and nature of depression is that you can't do that. You don't know how to do that. It's lost to you. When someone says, do it, you're like... I mean, it's literally like a man weeping because he can't walk because he's lost his legs. And you come and say, get up and walk! Right? And that's how ultimately insulting and tacky a comment like that is. Okay, so remove vexation from your heart. Easy enough, right? Put away pain from your body. How's that going for you folks? <laughs> Here you have you have biblical admonition, biblical exhortation to medicate yourselves to the hilt. <laughs> and this is the proof text. This is what we need. Right? Especially here in Orange County. Why bother with illegal drugs when I can just go to my doctor and get them prescribed to me quite legally? You know, remove the pain from your body. Do the best I can. Again, I mean, as general principles remove vexation from your heart, try to, be, try to have a happy outlook. I guess that's okay advice. As a general principle, put pain away from your body. Do we really have to be told to do that? It's kind of a duh. So these verses, again, I see as entrapping verses. They tell you to do the very thing you cannot do. Which sounds very much like what also? All of God's law. <laughs> right? All of God's law. And this is where you divide as a theologian. It's where you either follow Erasmus and the Enlightenment, okay, and you say, well, if God has told us to do it, we must be able to do it. To which Luther says, you idiot. Yeah. Well, that's putting it really politely. <laughs> yeah, Luther says things much more colorful than that. Okay. Um, no. God is telling you to do it because here's the human condition. We are so stupid in our sin. That being blind as bats, we boast that we can see. That being lame, I was going to say as ducks, but ducks aren't lame. What the I don't know. Anyway, being lame and not being able to walk, nonetheless in our minds, we think, walk just fine, thank you very much. To which the law is such that God comes and says, oh really? You think you can see? Tell me how many fingers I'm holding up. Oh, really? You think you can walk? Get up and walk. The law says to do the very thing you cannot do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. Easy? Easy? Every day? Every hour? Every situation? Love your neighbor as yourself. 
As much as you love yourself, what could possibly come close to that? Sorry, I was thinking about something else. Um, I have this Jesus doll. That's what I was thinking of. I was trying to remember his exact quote. I have this Jesus doll that the youth group kids gave me a few years ago. And it's great. It's this little doll like this. My son likes to play with it. Um, But this is heretical Jesus. This is Jesus where you, you, I think you push his back or something, and he talks, and he quotes scripture at you, only he misquotes scripture at you. And he says things that real Jesus never said. (laughs) So, you know, the the law that's like, love your neighbor as you love yourself, um, is twisted into this weird commending of your own egotism. And I think his, his exact wording is you press it and he says, as much as you love yourself, love the world. Which, I, I, maybe it doesn't strike you, but you know, if you listen to this thing 800 times, <laughs> it strikes you that the whole thing is predicated upon what? A self turned in on himself, self-love, Right? Which is not what we need more of. When psychologists tell you what you need to do is love yourself first. That is so not the problem. That is so not the problem. Our self-love is what we have and that gets twisted up into self-hate which is really self-love. It's just a reflective form of narcissism. It's why a suicide is ultimately a narcissistic self-loving act. Um, ask those who are left. Okay. Uh, Say, so, no, that's self-hate if you're going to kill yourself. It's not. You have to think about it. You have to, you have to study the situation. Self-love. Okay, so anyway, self-love is really the problem rather than the solution. And we are not to self-love and then from that flows out love for others. <laughs> Contrary to heretical Jesus who sleeps in my cabinet. I can't, he says all sorts of heretical things. It's a hoot. It's one of my favorite toys ever. Okay, um, how do we get on heretical Jesus? I don't know. So, um, oh yeah, 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 love. God and, and God, so God and His commandments tells you the things that you cannot do. That's the nature of it. That's where Luther and Erasmus did part ways. Frankly, that's where theologians of the cross and theologians of glory part ways. That's the, maybe the greatest riff in Christianity today is the law says do it and you either look and say, okay, or you look at it and you say, well, I can't. Someone else has to do it for me. Whatever meager attempts I try at it, and I will try at it, I already know are doomed to be woefully in fear, woefully in need of the blood of Christ to cover me. Okay, so God in the law says, do it, and it's the very thing you cannot do. And I think that that's the nature of verse 10 of chapter 11. Remove vexation from your heart. Well, if it was that easy, we'd all do it. The world truly would be a happy place. Like the t-shirt says, life truly would be good. And put away pain from your body. If that was so easy, makers of Tylenol would just go out of business. You can't do it. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. And now I think that last clause, finally he pulls the curtain back and shows you what this verse is really about. Not even youth and the dawn of life, which previously he praised. Previously said he's be strong, enjoy it. It sure as heck is better than old age. 
Now he comes full circle and says, yeah, and even that, the dawn of our years, the dawn of our days, even that is vanity. Okay, um, and certainly they aren't going to last. So that would be the perhaps even the chief reason why they're vanity. What you do in those days, you're going to end up being judged for. And those days don't last as long as you like. And you've got to move on. And that's where the book goes. So chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw now, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Which happens like when you're about 18, I think. You have to get a job. And taxes. And then voting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Who would want to go? I mean, we're all like seasoned and scarred, and it's like, yeah, I get over it. But oh my gosh, who would want to go through that again for the first time? Okay. Remember your creators in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. Now see how he's woven all these themes together of the light and the darkness and the morning, and the evening, and the day, and the night, and all going all the way back to chapter 1 and the cycle right at the beginning that He told you, He warned you, and here it is again. It's just a masterpiece. Because you end where you began, which makes the whole book itself a cycle. It's great. It's genius. Verse 2, chapter 12, Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, And the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. And the strong men are bent. Meaning the strong men aren't strong anymore. And the grinders cease because they are few. Nobody making bread. And those who look through the windows are dimmed is an extremely mysterious verse and fascinating. It's as if you're walking through a town that's becoming a ghost town and you look up in the window and you see dim people and as they look out on the dim gray bleakness of this place dying, they themselves are dying and dimming. And the doors on the street are shut, supposed to open with children running in and out and wives calling for their husbands and they're shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, there's no grinding, there's no bread, there's no economy, there's no bustle, there's no busyness, there's just the sound of the wind and a faint, faint sound of what used to be. And one rises up at the sound of a bird. As before, the birds you wouldn't even notice because life was so full. There was so much to think about, so much to do. Now it's all so quiet that you hear a bird and it startles you. And all the daughters of song are brought low. One by one, you've been to their funerals. They are afraid also of what is high. And the terrors are in the way.
So that there's no hope from above, no help, no answer. The almond tree blossoms, which is one of the first to blossom and then lose its petals in the spring. So it's blossomed, it's gone, and it's already losing its leaves. Grasshopper drags itself along. You know, the grasshopper that was new and sprang all about the place and the children chased it. Now it's dragging itself along in its death throes. And desire fails. You know, seize the day, that whole thing, the thing that's inside of you that wants to go, it's gone. Mourners go about the streets. He interrupts himself with his final thoughts. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, the well. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, meaningless of all meaninglessness, says the preacher. All, the all, is vanity. The end. That is the end. The next verses uh, are the uh, dust jacket, the back cover. It's what they write afterwards. It's what you read once the, the lights go back up or you're walking out to the lobby. Okay, so we end where we began. But as T.S. Eliot says, we know it for the first time. Right? So we go back, and now we know where this is going. We see that Ecclesiastes is art that imitates life, because it's God's Word. It's sort of life that also imitates this art. And it leaves us in death. Where it leaves us. And I think that that is fantastic. Because this is the dignity of despair and it's the dignity of honesty. And it is beautiful and it is fantastic and it is wonderful because when Christ comes and talks about eternal life or what that is, you know, you have some idea. Because those words eternal life and life with Christ and life with God, they're so empty, aren't they? You hear them so many times you take them for granted that at least they're empty in your ears. Even though they've got everything, the whole content, the grace of God, everything that's there, and yet in our sin, in our hardness, we're deaf to them. We're deaf to the meaning. We're deaf to what they say. We're deaf to so many of the words of Jesus. And Ecclesiastes is just the medicine we need because it reawakens our humanity, reawakens us to the reality it reawakens us to the fundamental problems of this existence and the death that comes for us all. When Jesus comes and says, I am life, it means something. It means so much more. So as I began, uh, one of the examples that I brought up, as I said, Christians are very often like people shouting the answer to the math problem that no one knows. 
Like people who storm into a coffee shop and throw the doors open and start shouting, Four! 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 Right? And no one knows what the heck we're talking about. You have to have the question. Was two plus two? Was five minus one? Okay, whatever. You have to have the question for the answer to make sense. And Ecclesiastes is that question. It's one of the things I hope for you that you, as you walk out of Ecclesiastes, as you walk out of this study, you are, are more fully equipped to be able to approach people with the question or to be able to realize that in people's complaints, sometimes in their tears, sometimes in their shouts, what's really going on there is the question. Instead of just cramming, you know, oh, Jesus makes it better. Listen to them. Listen to them articulate the question. Help them articulate the question. Sometimes you might even say, you know, I think it's even worse than that. Because in so doing, in so preparing them with the question, you prepare them for the answer. And that's the gift of Ecclesiastes. That's the grace of Ecclesiastes. Right? Why it's so very necessary. Okay, we've got four minutes left. Let us finish up with the postscript. Gosh, I hope I didn't ruin chapter 12. Like, you know, it's, such, it's so poetic. It's like, you don't talk over it, idiot. Just read it. But then that's not a Bible class. People go, why is he getting paid? So go home and read it yourself because it is just beautiful and it doesn't need interruptions. All right, verse 9. Now, this is the back of the book. Besides being wise, the preacher, that's Solomon... That's where we get the title Ecclesiastes. The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And remember, that's one of the one of the things we looked at is how to read the proverbs of Ecclesiastes, how to read proverbs in general. Don't look at them as like universal truths or golden rules fallen from heaven. Look at them as things to mull over, weighing and studying, okay? because that's what the preacher himself does: weighs and studies and arranges many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. Goads are cattle prods, sharp things. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, which is who? Yes! Solomon knows the answer. He's known the answer the whole time. He's just not going to give it to you because that's not the point. I'm going to ruin his beautiful art by just stamping like, but it's all okay because Jesus. Okay, He's not going to do that. He's letting you know here, he knows who the one shepherd is. All right? And he's letting you know that the full revelation is coming. Okay? Instead of just cheapening it, Solomon's going to leave Ecclesiastes, the wonderful piece of art it is, the wonderful gaping hole that can be filled in only by Christ Himself and by the New Testament Scriptures. Verse 12, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. Come visit me in my study. I have proof. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Yet another verse I wish I knew as a teenager. Go do your homework. Mom, 
Much study is a weariness of the flesh. Play some video games. Verse 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. That's it. Okay, He's saying, it's my last word. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. Now, commandments has a legalistic overtone to us, a legal, over, like as if we should just cross out commandments and say the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. It's not what he's saying. Fear God, which the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom, and keep, treasure, guard His words. It's the same thing Christ says to His disciples where he tells them, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to keep, guard, treasure everything that I have commanded is our terrible English rendition. It's everything that I have taught. My teachings, my words. So here too, fear God, that's the beginning of wisdom, and keep what he says. Keep his word. For this is the whole duty of man. It's a duty at which man fails. And so, since man can't keep the Word, the Word has to become man, John 1, in order to atone for us. Verse 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And there's the final words on the back of the book, which prick you a little bit too, don't they? Because they say judgment's coming. And they don't tell you what the Gospel of the New Testament tells you explicitly and repeatedly in various ways. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, as your study note says uh, rather well, uh, we will be brought into judgment. Every deed will be brought into judgment for condemnation or for acquittal by grace through the blood of Jesus. All right, and that is the back of the book. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard. On this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen.